Welcome to Opening Dharma Access, a podcast where we hear stories from BIPOC teachers about their Dharma experiences and practice and how these inform the ways they are sharing the Dharma today. I'm Reverend Leanne, your host for this episode. Joining me today is Dr. Rebecca Lee, a Dharma heir in the lineage of Chan Master Shen Yin, is the founder and guiding teacher of Chan Dharma Community. Her books include Allow Joy Into Our Hearts, Chan Practice in Uncertain Times, and the newly released Illumination, a guide to the Buddhist method of no method. She lives in New Jersey with her husband. Her writings, talks, guided meditation, and schedule can be found at www.rebeccalee.org. And we'll also have that in the show notes. Welcome, Rebecca, to ODAs. So glad you could join us today. It's great to be here. It's lovely to, to join you here. Great. So let's go ahead and jump right in. And um, for our listeners, can you uh, share with us how you identify racially, ethnically, and any other categories of social location that are of importance to you right now? Sure. I'm of Chinese descent. Uh, my parents are Chinese. They were born in China and then they went to Hong Kong in the 60s, like a lot of people there. And um, so I was born in Hong Kong, grew up in Hong Kong, uh, grew up in the British education system there. And uh, so that's my uh, sort of the ethnic side of my identity. And uh, I would say besides that, that's really important um, for me, uh, for in my experience, like my uh, being a cisgender woman and also in the Dharma, my, my Dharma life, also being a, um, a householder, like a lay Dharma teacher versus being an ordained uh, priest or monastic teacher. Mm -hmm. And maybe for our listeners, can you say a little bit about the structure of um, your lineage so that people have an understanding? You said you're lay or ordained or a Dharma era. How, you know, just give us a sense because there are different differences in different traditions. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think more people are familiar with Zen, which is the... Japanese pronunciation of the exact same character that is Chan here. And so um, Ch uh, Chan developed in China as Buddhism became uh, uh, really mature in, in China. And so around the uh, 6th century, um, so this school of practice called Chan Buddhism began to really become developed. And um, so it, the the f the, there's this lineage um, that oftentimes the first lineage ma master is understood as uh, being Bodhidharma shared with, between us and Zen. And in China, um, the sixth lineage uh, master, uh, Master Huinan, is a very important person. And the sutra, the platform sutra that's associated with him was very important text in our tradition. And um, so from then on, there were a lot of uh, generations of teachers in Chan. And uh, later on, there was the development of Chaodong, which is more commonly known as Soto um, in Japanese, as well as um, Linji, which is more commonly known as Rinzai in Japanese, in de that developed in China. And so um, in about the 11th century, 11th, 12th century, that's actually when um, Dogen Zenji um, studied Zen in China and studied with one of the teachers in my lineage, um, that who's the, who's the student of Master Hongzhi. Um, and so that that's one of the two lineage, that's a lineage in Chaodong uh, uh, school. And so uh, that lineage goes all the way down to the one of the teachers uh, that uh, from which my master, Master Shen Yan, received his transmission. He also received Dharma transmission in the Linji school. Um, so he received transmission from both Chaodong and Linji school. 
And what he did was he combined these two lineages and turned it into um, the Dharma drum lineage so that all his Dharma heirs will automatically have received transmission in both Chaodong and lineage uh, and, and Linji school of Chan Buddhism. And he gave Dharma transmission to several lay students um, and one of w- one of whom I also study with Dr. Simon Child, who's based in the UK of uh, Western Chan Fellowship. And so um, I, st- I was studying with Master Shen Yan, and I also studied with him as well as Master Shen Yan's first uh, most senior lay Dharma heir, John Crook, who was originally Simon Child's teacher. After Master Shen Yan passed, they trained me to lead retreats, and that's um, how I ended up receiving Dharma transmission in the lineage through Simon Child. And so they were lay teachers as opposed to the monastics. In the Chinese Chan tradition, the monastics, they are celibate practitioners. They uh, So when they took the monastic vow, they, they took the full monastic vow. Mm-hmm. And um, so celibacy is the main one of the main dis- distinctions. And uh, there are also a lot of uh, different uh, precepts that they have to follow to maintain the monastic lifestyle. So that's the main uh, difference is between the, the, is the, in the lifestyle of monastics uh, who, who live in a monastic community uh, but actually, a lot of the, the daily life it would involve um, devoting their time and energy to um, administering the center. Of course, they don't have their own uh, money, um, mm-hmm. so and and things like that. So that's the main difference because uh, they devote their uh, the whole whole life to to serving the Dharma. Thus, whereas for for us uh, in at least in the Dharma drum lineage that, mm-hmm. that I'm familiar with, the teachers, the lay teachers, uh, I have studied with like John Crook and Simon Child. Uh, we all have professional, full-time professional jobs. Like John Crook was a professor like myself mm-hmm. and uh, Simon Child was a physician. And mm-hmm. so what we, what I'm familiar with is for um, people, for folks to have a, a very full professional life, but uh, basically um, train and devote our other time to to the Dharma, to practice and to uh, la- and later to teach, to share the Dharma. So in your lineage, um, you mostly teach to lay people. In um, what I what I do, like what uh-huh. I what I do as a, a a lay teacher. What was helpful to you as a practitioner and what would you share with the community of listeners and other people um, in the Buddhist world, in North America in particular, let's say, um, uh, how to support people of color, um, practitioners and teachers? I guess it would be helpful to like talk a little bit about the setting in which I practice. Yeah. Um, because I started practicing in a very small group led by a Mexican-American teacher mm-hmm. uh, who was married to a Taiwanese-American uh, Buddhist practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in, and, and they set up a meditation group in their living room. I think I was the only person of Chinese descent in the group. So they're like, you know, they're Mexican-American. They're um, also uh, like white American. They're um, so... It was, a, it was like a diverse group, like in background. And um, so I did not I think of like, oh man, this is like a really homogeneous space. And I was introduced to the teaching of Master Shen Yan from that group. But I was brought to that group by my now husband, who has studied Zen um, year, years before. And mm-hmm. he's this, you know, like white guy from Kansas. Um, so I, I, I like to tell this story because I think oftentimes we whole like assumptions about like how people came to the Dharma and the their experience in mm-hmm. in, in in the space in Dharma center space and um I didn't I didn't get into Chan Buddhism because it's Chinese Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Like it could have been Vajrayana, it could have been Zen, it could have been Japanese. It like it was not 
why I was attracted to the practice. It had to do with the teachings of um, of Master Shen Yan. I was introduced to his writings. I did read the very first couple books I read uh, by him were Chinese books, and uh, but it had to do with how accessible the teachings were, how it spoke to me um, compared to some other, what I would call more traditional Chinese way of talking about Buddhism, I, I wasn't able to relate to that. And so, but I was able to relate, like I find he was really speaking to to my suffering, to my experience. Mm-hmm. And that was what drew me to Master Shen Yan's teaching. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was quite interesting when I moved to New Jersey for my academic position. And I chose this position because it was, it allowed me to be able to be, to, to be close to the meditation center in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I found myself. There is this center that has a lot of Taiwanese American in, uh, running the center. And, um, so that's also that. So that's the second phase of my practice is I'm in, I find myself in the space with mostly, uh, Taiwanese Americans, um, speak, who speak Mandarin. And I, I, I knew a little Mandarin. I was like, so that wasn't my, 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 uh, my first language. Um, so that's like my third language. And so, um, so that's, that's where I find myself, uh, in. So again, it's not a space that is, uh, that I didn't find myself being look, looking like looking different from everyone there. I look like what, what everyone, many people look there, but I didn't share their, uh, their cultural background. I didn't, I understand a lot of things that was happening there. Um, so that was my, my experience. And, um, and I find myself being in the role of, uh, being a bridge for, to help Master Shen Yin to reach out to, to and connect with his Westerner students. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, because what happened was I w- became his translator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then it sort of kind of happened organically. That was, it was not being assigned to me as a job. And so his English speaking, uh, mostly, uh, what I think, yeah, it's all Westerner, uh, students, um, felt that I could help them, um, connect with Master Shen Yan. Like, for example, if they have a, question they want to talk to Master Shen Yan, I could help them uh, uh, f- find a time to talk to Master Shen Yan. And, and I, then I could also be there to translate for them, you know, to have the question answer outside of retreats. And so that had been my, my, a lot of my experience in the early days in, in the Dharma space. I, I think what, what I have, part of what I've taken from that was, um, everyone's background and uh, experience so diverse. We just absolutely cannot know <laughs> just by, by, by seeing that person, uh, 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 appearance to, to know like, Oh, like you, it, it must be how they came to the Dharma or that's, that's your experience. Um, and I would say, like my my experience may be quite quite different from a, what a lot of people. Yeah, I was thinking about this morning how mm-hmm. mostly I've practiced um, until I went overseas to practice um, in what we call convert Buddhism, which in the Shinru Suzuki Roshi lineage uh, administered to the Japanese American community in San Francisco Bay Area, and then the the hippies came along and then he chose them and went off to start San Francisco Zen Center. So, but he, as I, you know, came to administer. And when I was in Vietnam, there's very much what we're afraid to talk about in the U.S. or, or my sense in the convert community is that um, people proselytize about Buddhism. 
Like, it's like the good news. So, you know, just like any religion, you want to offer the teaching to people. I mean, maybe not proselytizing in the sense that, well, you know, in the sense of, yeah, this is, this is a way of being in the world that we want to share with you. Um, and, and I would say very specifically religious. Um, so I was thinking, did Master Senyan come to proselytize, to bring Buddhism to North America? And is there a sense that your community of Dharma Drum is different in the sense of it stayed as its own entity versus having to split, say, like with Sunu Suzuki? You know what mm. I'm trying to say? Yes, and so, yes. And then mm-hmm. is there like two two kind of lines in it? Not in a bad way, just, you know, like it's the the, the lay. And I think Thich Nhat Hanh community is a bit like this, where the lay is much more very, and, and I don't know if when you say Western, you mean mostly white. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, I think the lay, um, while of course there are many people and, and widely, but still as a group, it's still predominantly white. And that, whereas the monastics of Tignahan are predominantly Vietnamese, mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. predominantly. I'm not saying there aren't others. So, mm-hmm. mm, does that have any resonance or comparative things with your your lineage, or is that not something you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's something that I I, I think about a lot. You know, yeah. uh, in the sense that um, I've been. I've been in this world for so long, uh, mm-hmm. in the world meaning the, you know, the Chan, Chan Buddhist world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and is understood as a, um, kind of like a latecomer to, to the scene here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like it, it will, it will be accurate to say that Amash Chinyan did arrive at the, at New York later than, um, you know, sin- Shinru Suzuki Roshi in yeah. on the West Coast. So it when did he arrive? Roughly in uh, early seventies, early seventies. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, so when he arrived, uh, you know, Zen's quite relatively established right here already. And um, so the, you, you asked huge, big, big questions. And I'm trying to like, try to get, like, remember like, to address all of them. Just don't let me get away with like forgetting some of that. The first question was whether like uh, Master Shin came to proselytize. Um, the answer would be, I say no. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, my understanding, and I, I feel fairly confident that is accurate. Um, what he wanted to do is to um, bring the Chan practice the practice itself to the West. Mm-hmm. And I think um, also because he's very aware of how, um, well, you remember in the seventies, you know, like, like the understanding in the world is like, this is the leader of the world. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We are, And so, um, and, and if you think about, you know, uh, how, how you can bring the most benefits to the world is to if you can bring the practice of cultivating wisdom and compassion to the powerful people in the world Mm -hmm. then there will you can magnify the effect right Mm -hmm. so if like um uh uh, folks here um uh that they often um they have a lot of influence in cultural domain, education, scientific domain, of course, economic domain. Um, they, they they are aware of the of uh, uh, ethical implication of their action, and um, also to be able to engage in the practice so that to alleviate their own suffering, then um, they will they will not be prone to act out their suffering. In, in in their in their life and in their work, then then everyone would benefit, like both here domestically and also like in their role as um, leader in the domain that's that's going beyond the United States. I think that's one part part of it, and uh, and I think the other thing is, uh, it was he, it was um, difficult for him to to uh to actualize his vision 
of centering Chan practice, um, and and in in Taiwan when he finished his doctorate education in Japan, so he he went to Japan uh, to get his doctorate because he felt that one one thing that uh, that Chinese Buddhism really needed was more highly educated monastics uh, to both to really educate the monastics properly and also to raise the stature, the status of Buddhism in, in Taiwanese society at that time. Because at that time, it was, uh, I don't know how it was like in Vietnam, uh, in Chinese society, uh, Buddhists were seen as these uneducated, superstitious people, and so the educated elite very often would would shun Buddhism and 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 would like uh would would, would be Christian instead. And he felt that was such a uh, such such a pity because uh, there's so much Chan Buddhism could offer to everyone, and it had to do with sort of this misunderstanding about. About about Chan Buddhism, and so he felt it was really important for him to be the one who go also do do the part. Like he's like, you, instead of saying that everyone should go get more educated, so like, I guess I go do it like mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. and then. But when he is done with that um, education, it was he said like <laughs> he would talk about. I can't remember exact uh, a metaphor he used, but it's like he 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 learned how to drive this like you know big machine, but there was no nothing, no 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 way to use it. Mm. Like when he returned to Taiwan, mm. and that's why he thought maybe, um, maybe there's something he could do by by being in the United States that mm. it's possible for him to to uh, actualize his vision, mm-hmm. and so um, so he he worked with the causes and conditions that came his way, and he was first invited to teach as a uh, uh, to teach retreats because you know so he's like okay i became a chan master because ah, <laughs> like people ah. are interested in chan practice ah. and uh so that's you find as like the most uh what's most useful what people what's needed most and um and over the years after that uh after he started like uh he also made sure he uh, he uh, he shared the his deep knowledge in Buddha Dharma. So mm-hmm. he in his six year solitary retreat, he studied the whole Tripitaka. So he mm-hmm. he read and unlearned everything. Um, so he was well versed in uh, the entire Tripitaka, uh, mm-hmm. the sutras and sastras and and the Chan, Chan history. Trying to score and all that stuff. So, um, it became possible for him to identify what's like really, like, like, is it like to identify the, the, the commonality of mm-hmm. different schools of teachings and, and, and make it accessible, um, mm-hmm. and identify the most important, like the, the teaching that would be most useful, useful mm-hmm. for, uh, for, for practitioners nowadays. And um, I think that's why when I encounter his writing, I find it so accessible mm-hmm. um, it, because um, when I mention like Chan for even back in Hong Kong, there it has this reputation of like it being so obtuse and and mm-hmm. profound and deep and like it, you're not supposed to understand it like you know like you you're not supposed to understand it if it's like you can at least like philosophy you know like a philosopher philosophy professor like the worst insults is like oh you are so easy to understand you know like uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. so so like the, the the reputation on the street in the chinese society is like chan is not we're not supposed to understand it and uh, master shen yan he was like no 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 like Everyone should be able to understand it because if you don't understand, how do you use it? Like it's for Chan practices for applying and integrating into your life. It's not something to, to just be like to, to talk about, to make it sound you are very smart or, or something. 
Um, so I think that's why his teaching is so accessible. It's very interesting because I live in that world, so I kind of take that for granted. But like I would hear people who come, um, especially the people who don't speak any Chinese, who would tell me how, you know, this is so great. This place tried to uh, accommodate English speakers. Uh, so whenever Master Shining was teaching, there would be um, translation. So he spoke in Chinese, he spoke in Mandarin Chinese, and I would translate into English. And so that's the um, understanding out there that like Chinese Meditation Center, that's a space where people could go and, and, um, and, and learn, uh, even if you don't speak Chinese. There are some Chinese speakers who also speak English, right? There was not the situation where he was being asked to choose, unlike Suzuki Roshi. And he made it quite clear to the community. The first, first of all, he didn't start out with the Chinese community. I think that's the key difference. He started out with, uh, the, um, with, with a group of non-Chinese immigrant students who were interested in Chan practice. So that's how he started out as a teacher. When his master passed away, he had to return to Taiwan to inherit his master's center there. And so some of his students, and also because he started having uh, a following in the United States, which at that time in the 70s meant now suddenly you are... <laughs> You're like a real teacher, like, cause yeah. you have American students. Yeah. And so, like, his reputation began to grow in yeah. Taiwan, which then resulted in uh, a huge number of, uh, Taiwanese American. And also some who've been here for a long time, some who are more recent immigrants in New York area, uh, coming to the center. And, um, so it became a, uh, a center that's more look more Chinese. Like so, someone walk in is like, oh, it's like a like a regular ethnic Buddhist center, but like it didn't start that way. And also, Master Shenyan's insistence is like he he knew he wasn't here to create a center to support um, Taiwanese immigrant only. Every time with a meeting, he would tell he would remind everyone that like we are here to bring Chan practice to the United States to mm -hmm. everyone in the United States. That's why we have mm -hmm. bilingual program, you know? Mm -hmm. So if that means you have to sit through a talk for twice as long because you we have translation, <laughs> that's just, that is just how we're going to do it. And, um, so, so that's, that's how he insisted in, in, mm -hmm. in doing, in doing that. And like the retreat center now, I teach, uh, everything's in English. And mm -hmm. um, currently now in the Chan Meditation Center, there are programs that are chanting mm -hmm. that are, they are in, they are Chinese mm -hmm. only. So I, I, my understanding is that if you, if you join it, it will be in Chinese only. They, they will not be offering like a English translation for that. And the, so, the, the, it sounds like that's more new. I, um, what well, I think the chanting side of things had been, um, I, I haven't really joined the chanting, uh, side of the practice there because yeah. what happened? I can tell you why. Because, like, um, so when Master Shenyang was teaching, we will have, uh, translation, but then, mm -hmm. like, uh, there were these, uh, other programs. For example, um, I, my husband and I both went through the Dhamma lecture training, like the first part of our Dhamma te teacher training program. And it was separated into the Chinese speaking side and the English speaking side because the Chinese speaking side, they, they want to be able to do the training in mm -hmm. Mandarin Chinese, uh -huh. which obviously would not be possible for the people who don't speak Chinese to be part of. So I was part of the English speaking side of the, mm -hmm. of the training, which include like, you know, New York, Queens is a very diverse community there. We have people of different background, but like uh, I could say, you know, folks who largely, who is, cause it's like a long, it was a long program. And like the, those few of us who finished and went all the way to the end and started teaching. 
So I find myself being in a much smaller group of、um, English-speaking Dharma lecturers、um, in the early 2000s. That I was this odd phenomenon <laughs> of like there, there's this Chinese-looking person who is in the English Western-speaking side of the of the center's program, and、uh, that's that's also part of. Part of my my world over there, and largely because I was the translator、uh, as well, and also because my Mandarin is just not good enough to be speak to be teaching in Chinese. <laughs> yeah, like there would be a lot of suffering if they have to listen to me teach in in Mandarin Chinese, and also largely because I don't think I am、uh, well equipped、uh, culturally. To, to really be useful in that way.、Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think like I may be slightly more useful to to be teaching on the other,、uh, the other、mm-hmm. part in the other part of the program.、Mm-hmm. And so that, and let's be brief about this because I want to get to some other stuff that's more about you instead of the, the lineage. <laughs>、um, You know, which I'm very fascinated by. Not, not, not that I'm not fascinated. And so, basically, the two lanes, so to speak, in your lineage, the Dharma Drum lineage, is would you say the lay and English speaking, like like the Tikkhan tradition, or not so much? Yeah, it's interesting that that's the part I haven't addressed. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's quite interesting. That was not by design, but it kind of became like that because the lay. Lay Dharma heirs all receive only lay、uh, full transmission. That meaning they are, you know, they can be completely independent teachers and give their own transmission. And he gave full transmission to lay people who are not Chinese, right? To UK, Switzerland, Croatia, and then one on the west coast here. And so I guess there's that that piece. I think set any rules, but I think their understanding is that then you you these people are supposed to go and like pass on the lineage to lay people, and、um, so then they're the monastics who will be doing the、uh, a lot of teaching、uh, because language. Many of them were Taiwanese, and so they would be giving doing teaching in Mandarin Chinese. So of course, then、um, people who are more comfortable with learning the Dharma in Mandarin Chinese will be drawn, drawn to that those those teachers, and so there's that that kind of natural、uh, division. And then people who are bilingual, they will they will attend retreats by and teachings by monastics and also by the lay teachers.、Mm-hmm. And um, so as a lay Dharma teacher. You, can you give the precepts? Yes, yes.、Um, the lay precepts I, or all the precepts? This is not the monastic precepts. Yeah, and、um, so we can give the five precepts, and we can also give the bodhisattva precept, the full、mm-hmm. the full bodhisattva precept. And for listeners who don't know, the sixteen bodhisattva precepts are the highest precepts for lay people. Yes,、mm-hmm. yeah, that's the.、Uh, The precepts where we take and we're committing to engaging in the bodhisattva path、mm-hmm. practice, like forever.、Mm-hmm. So that go the power of that of that vow goes beyond this life. So、uh, you, you you know, I think that like the one of the things that just came up with us in a view with、um, within the Tikkhan Han tradition is that the Tikkhan Han tradition is a people of color tradition, <laughs> um, and so would you say the same? About your lineage,、uh, I guess you can say that it is so interesting because we kind of it's just just not what, like we we don't think we don't think about and talk about it like that that way that much. So, for example, like、uh, you know, because it's like a very you can say American way of thinking about it. So, for example, like I, I received、um, transmission from Simon Child, who, who's not American. He's like. British, you know the other teacher, you know、uh, that I studied with also is British. So actually, in my、uh, in my book,、uh, in the first chapter, I talk about I think of myself as a fusion. I am like a British Chinese American Buddhist,、mm-hmm. uh-huh. Uh-huh. and sort of like a, like the merging of these different 
different different culture, different way mm-hmm. of um, thinking about things. That partly also has to do with my upbringing in in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So, so in your community, is there any dis- like I think in general, there's a in, in my experience at least in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's for years now there's been uh, a real sense of how to be more inclusive in their specific way to teach to people mm-hmm. of color or BIPOCs. And mm-hmm. so is there any of that discussion in your community at this point? Or it's like you said, not, not really in the discussion. Um, so I think it's helpful to, to distinguish, like when we say community, like, so there's the, the Dharma drum spaces that I teach in. And also there's like the Chan Dhamma community that I asked, I have established. That's my student. That's kind of not really part of that. Although mo- many of them attend retreats at the Dhamma Drum Retreat Center. So, but they're like institutionally, organizationally kind of s- separate and, and, and with different culture, with different okay. culture, different setup. Uh-huh. So, um, and because they are both ethnically diverse, spaces mm-hmm. um so in chandama community uh we have a good a fair number of practitioners of uh, chinese descent but like i think there's also a lot of diversity among this group so see like chinese are not chinese they're different chinese you know they're mm-hmm. chinese from taiwan chinese like from hong kong chinese from um uh, uh, china mainland mm-hmm. china and also american-born chinese and so, um, which just completely different way of thinking about things. And so mm-hmm. like, uh, for me, it's important that I, uh, I, I mean, I, I have enough understanding of the diversity mm-hmm. in the group mm-hmm. and not, not think of this as like a monolithic group and ignore the, the intricacies in the, in the, in the difference in their experience and background and, mm-hmm. and, and, the, Besides outside of this group, of course, there are, um, folks, uh, of different backgrounds. Like there are people who are, uh, raised and born in the U.S. And, um, so they might be, you know, white American, uh, they might be Latino American. And there are people who are, um, who are f- from other countries. Mm-hmm. So, um, another, another, a group that Master Shen Yan, um, often attracted us, like people who moved to the U.S. from, uh, some parts of Europe. So, um, so there, th- there's this mix of, uh, of, uh, people of very different backgrounds in, in Chandama community. Uh, and in the Dhamma Drum centers, there, um, for example, the retreats that I lead, you know, it's just varies from retreat to retreat. So like mm-hmm. uh, there will be some retreat with a, uh, a, a good number of, um, again, uh, uh, practitioners of Chinese descent from different background. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just like a mix of uh, uh, that, that quite reflect the, 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 the demographic makeup mm-hmm. of the, of, of the area that we live in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm trying to say that I, I, I don't, I don't sit in a retreat. like, like I'm looking at a group of people who don't look like, the, <laughs> who don't look like, the, the demographic in, in New York City. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, so you did differentiate, let's say, even within the Asian, you know, umbrella, the mm-hmm. variation, immigrant, Hong Kong people versus Taiwanese versus American-born and all that. And you talked about how knowing the differences is important. Is there a way that you can share with us as you teach, how do you negotiate the differences like for instance i you know like karma (laughs) it's like a a big topic sometimes that on one level like for myself i just take it to be true (laughs) you know in a very to me ethnic way um and and i don't need a lot of discussion about it it just kind of i just hold it as a possibility i don't you know and causes and conditions i think are, are really important but um, whereas it, it becomes like an issue for a lot of um, non-Asian people that practice, um, that I've practiced with. So I, I don't know, is there some way 
And and if there isn't, there isn't. But is there some, yeah, way that you can explicate that a little bit for us? How you handle the the variations? Well, I think even for yeah, even for um like American-born Chinese mm-hmm. practitioners, it would be difficult. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Because like they 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 were born and grew up in this culture, mm-hmm. and um and so yeah, uh, I think that's why the just understanding the 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 who who's in the room, who's in the group, um, mm-hmm. is crucial for me to um, calibrate like how to how to explain a certain concept, how to. Mm-hmm. Um, and because usually, even with people who are more recent, uh, immigrants, I don't know, I guess they get their immigrant, like they grew up in China, they like mm-hmm. come and study here and work here and same thing from Taiwan. Uh, mm-hmm. but the younger generation also different from the older mm-hmm. generation. So I mm-hmm. think like the older generation that when they, uh, they grew up with a certain kind of uh, Buddha's teaching that mm-hmm. like that's like oh yeah karma is like that it means certain thing but like mm-hmm. in you know like in the younger generation it means different thing mm. and so I think it's not just uh not just cultural also generational mm-hmm. uh and so like the how much one is ready to oh yeah it means this like it just, it just entirely cannot be assumed mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. uh uh, it's really important for me to listen closely, like where they're coming from, like where, like, and because what happens is, I can tell you one example. Okay. Um, someone who was uh, born in Taiwan and came to the U.S. with her parents when she was very, very young. So she basically was born, like, with just like raised in the U.S. She's like, you know, just like not that much like Chinese, Chinese side of things. And, uh, but she did, um, she did, she, she was exposed to the understanding of uh, karma being, um, used by her, by her parent from, from a way of teaching that, that she understood as very, um, harsh and punitive. Mm-hmm. And, so she's extremely allergic to, to, <laughs> to this, you know? So like, you're uh-huh. like, oh, you know, she's Chinese, you know, she could get in there. Like, oh, no, no, no. Like it was just not even close. Um, mm. she's even more resistant to the, to, to the work, to the, the whole mm. concept than, than, you know, than someone who, who's like, who's, who's not Chinese descent at all. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, so that's why, uh, I think this is like a way to answer your question about understanding the, um, the nuances in, in the differences in the experience and mm-hmm. also how in, in some part, I, I don't want, it's very important not to like overgeneralize it. So in some pockets of Asian society, um, some of the concepts and teachings, uh, could be misinterpreted by individuals and, and then they turn it into things they can use mm-hmm. to control people especially mm-hmm. their children and, yeah, yeah. and and so um and so i think the key always is to um clarify incorrect understanding mm-hmm. to make sure that like the, to help people understand what is the uh, uh right view mm-hmm. and and that's actually continuing the work by Master Shunyan, one of the first two books I read by him literally was to clarify all the misunderstanding that Chinese people had about Buddhism. Like tons and tons and tons of them. It's like, no, mm-hmm. that's not what this is. That's not what that means. You know, yeah. that's an incorrect understanding. And so yeah. that was a really important under- education for me to even under- to understand all the misunderstanding <laughs> in, the, in the culture about Buddhism. Um, so what is the edge of your teaching these days? Well, there are a couple of things. One is that uh, I work with such diverse group. People like just come very different background. And so um, for me, I what I do is I focus on the common 
common human shared experience uh, as human beings um, to to engage in in Chan practice. Like so I, I really focus on that. I feel like it's important that everyone can re- like, and it's important for me to share teaching that's like everyone can relate to. So it's not like not only for people who are like who are highly educated or who are like women. And and I think it has something to do with the training I did I had from Master Shenyan um, that he uh, he reminded us when we were doing the teacher training that like we should not teach from our experience only in the sense that like, of course like you know we have our experience but like so that we are not inadvertently um, framing the teaching that only is relatable for those who had to share like my my experience like as a woman you know as you know, uh, someone who has a lot of education or like, has a professional job that's really important for me and uh I, it's like of course a work in progress like that mm. and also um another piece is uh, to bring in because i'm a sociologist mm-hmm. also so to bring in the understanding of how uh group dynamic and social structure uh, can can uh, can hinder or obstruct our practice uh, and in into into my teaching sometimes not necessarily uh, in an obvious way but the, how I handle like uh, situations in teaching and um, you gotta give an example now of that. <laughs> So, for example, actually, like uh, um, I remember, I, I shared this with a with a student, and and it really like uh, helped her. So, um, because again, like uh, I often have a group that's very that that's have very diff- diverse background. So, um, there's this situation in uh, an intensive seven day intensive retreat I was teaching last year. And so what I do is I, I, I offer, I offer a lot of private interviews during these retreats. And so, um, the second full day retreat, everyone get a, get a interview. And, and then like at the rest of the retreat, like then the following day, I would offer optional interviews so people can, can sign up for an interview. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, um, so what happens is like okay, so then it's like you you sign up, and then you just that means like the more you are like eager or you, you to go get to sign up for an interview, you will get more interviews. And um, so um, there are these people who are quick to go sign up for the interview, and they're on top of the list. So if I only do the first come first serve way of going about it. Then certain people of a certain uh, upbringing will be will receive a lot more attention from me. Mm-hmm. So, and then for uh, for example, uh, women are less likely to be the one getting the like the sign up right away, um, and uh, the. Uh, uh, Asian American women, I guess, of Chinese des- uh, descent, like uh, they, I, I know they need, they need attention, but they wouldn't be the one signing up for an interview. So I told them that like you can sign up for an interview, but I will also reserve the right of inviting you for an interview, even if you didn't sign mm-hmm. up for it. And so I invited a few, uh, few, a uh, uh, few, uh, women. Practitioners were quiet, um, and and they 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 were like, oh yeah, I was really kind of needing something, and um, but they they were never assigned for an interview themselves, and they felt like mm. they should let other people take their turn, mm-hmm. and and <laughs> so um, so for me, it's really important to not just have this idea that. Oh, okay. It's fair. Everyone can sign up. Mm. So if you didn't sign up, mm-hmm. then that's your problem. I think it's important for me to understand why there is that inequity, like no, mm-hmm. like that, that, that can result from that situation and, um, mm-hmm. do my part to, 
to to make sure that everyone got what what they needed. That's the way to bring in my understanding of um, group dynamic and social structure, sort of like you know, uh, gender. Um, I think mm-hmm. um, gender socialization has a big piece in it. Um, the mm-hmm. sort of the go getter, like got signed up for is mostly um, men. There's nothing against mm-hmm. men, uh, male uh, practitioners. I'm happy that they're eager to to get support mm-hmm. to 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 move forward in the practice. Um, uh, but I need to make sure that everyone get the attention that they that they, that they need and can use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Do you want to say anything about your book that is out? Maybe a bit about what was the impetus for this book? The impetus is to to see if there's something useful I can offer to mm-hmm. to the Dharma. Because uh, you know, it took me a while to even get to thinking about buying uh, writing a book because I felt like there are so many books, uh, great teachings, and I was uh, encouraged by someone I met actually when I visited Taiwan uh, a few years ago who told me, I still remember this, she's like a lay person. She said like, Rebecca, you know, like, it, like y- your, your being uh, a Dharma teacher made me believe that it's possible for me to practice and, 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 be able to go somewhere with Chan practice. Mm. What was left not said, which what was left unsaid, was as a woman. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, um, as a lay lay woman, lay person woman, mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. because there's like a you probably are familiar with there's like a long tradition or history of you know women being seen as you. Don't don't even bother, um, and mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. which completely need to be debunked. Um, yeah, and they had and, to clean up. But. <laughs> yeah, cook and clean. That's cook that's your clean word. Up. Yeah. yeah, and pray pray to be reborn as a man, and you know all that need to be rebunked, debunked. Yeah, and so yeah. like but like I I you know when I heard that you know she she's someone who who's highly educated you know but like she had that doubt and her telling me. Um, help me see that. Well, I guess, I guess I just have to, you know, <laughs> do do this. Uh, and then, uh, but it's still, still, I want to make sure that it's something that is useful. And then that's why I hire uh, an, an editor because you know how when you're teaching, you kind of you you, you teach things, and mm-hmm. of course, it's helpful. I I only think about, I try to think about what would be useful for the group who. The, that I'm working with now. And mm-hmm. so, um, but then this person who's edited a lot of Dharma books told me, oh, like, I've never seen this. Like, I've never mm-hmm. seen this teaching. So, like, mm-hmm. this this is what, you know, we should be focusing on. The title, A Guide to the Buddhist Method of No Method. Uh, I think the word, the gu- a guide, is probably a good word. To, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's really to help practitioners identify like where they might be kind of getting off the uh, the path mm-hmm. a bit here and there, and largely mm-hmm. because the practice of silent illumination that's the focus of the book here. Um, it's the method of no method, so mm-hmm. that means it's hard to really grasp how to how to do it. Uh, yeah. And and so really, it's by making mistakes <laughs> that uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. to that you will find like d- don't worry, you'll make mistakes. And actually, it's from the what we call mistake, but actually, it's through that that's part of the process to to gain insight into the workings of your mind. So mm-hmm. um, what what's what what's called mistake or errors or uh, side side meandering? They are all mm-hmm. all good. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it it's interesting because um, I think a lot. You know, sometimes people go, "What's your purpose as a teacher?" You know, and especially in their first practice discussion, they like, "What am I supposed to get out of this?" or whatever. And and what's your role? And I always say, "My role is to encourage you in practice and the guide." So so it's very interesting. And and people think that oh, we enlighten into some spacious. Be- 
beautiful mind that's perfect and and how we get there and what that is is part of the journey and they they think it's a destination but it's really the the path isn't it yeah it's yeah the whole thing so and yeah and and i totally agree with you to encourage each other actually not just Mm -hmm. me encouraging Mm -hmm. the practitioners um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of their sincere practice, they encourage mm-hmm. me to, to keep, keep going, to keep learning, learning from them, learning from the Dharma, learning to discover, uh, what I didn't learn from my teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. so, uh, we are encouraging each other. We are fellow, uh, travelers on, on the path, mm-hmm. most definitely. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've, we've been talking a bit and this has been great. Anything you that I haven't asked or hasn't come up that you want to say? No, I think you did it. You, you asked amazing questions, Leanne. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed this conversation. You know, oh, like, uh, these are like a lot of these topics, like things that I have thought about and, uh, so it's really great to have the opportunity to talk about this, to like also gain some clarity about like my own, own path, my own experience. And, uh, uh, and I, I really enjoy being, having the opportunity to think about like how, what from, from that experience, uh, what I can bring to my students. And uh, also interesting recently I had this, um, opportunity to to do a way seeking mind uh sharing with um, a a few of my students and i said like you know i consider my experience kind of boring so but like i guess if you want to hear like i'll share and then they're like wow like they just like they have like a long list of questions and then they we have to find another session i guess um life my very ordinary path like they thought it was so unusual <laughs> so <laughs> well i was gonna say in zen in general that being ordinary is the epitome of of zen right um uh we become ordinary people and i think it's seeing the specialness for lack of a better word right now of our specificity within mm-hmm. the ordinariness i think is is part of i i would say the to me, the gift of the Dharma. Yeah. They're not yeah, separate. I, I, yeah. Exactly. So, like, uh, I was, I think that was what I was trying to convey. I wasn't sure if I was successful. It was like every uh, person uh, that I practice with, they just completely unique in their experience. Of course, they have, you know, their background and their identity. And, and yet at the same time, you know, they they all have their own unique causes and conditions mm-hmm. and for me it's just incredibly important to uh always remember that and and um and work and then work with them from from that place from where they are mm-hmm. and, and allow myself to work from you know my unique set of um, causes and conditions this all this converging is very special um, I always like to talk about it as like a miracle, like, like you and I here being able to share this space and mm-hmm. talk about this, you know, that's, that's, it. we won't, we won't, that it won't happen again. No, right. No, uh, right. Yes. We can have more wonderful conversation, but not, not, not exactly this one. Yeah. Right. Even mm-hmm. with all the editing. It's not going to happen again. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Even then, yeah. that'll be a different one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, life is like one miracle after another. Well, it's a real blessing. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being with us and uh, sharing yourself and your teachings and uh, with the listeners. This has been Reverend Lian, your host for this episode for Opening Dharma Access with Dr. Rebecca Lee, sharing their Dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. For Lama Karma Yeshe Chodron, Sister Peace, and Leela Bothwell, the other co-hosts as they share their discussions with more teachers in the coming months. Look for new episodes on the first Tuesday of every month. In between episodes, we'll also share a meditation, mindfulness practice, chant or another form of practice from our guests with you. 
come back to check that out and to keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenleap. The letter A, the number two, the letter Z as in Z at gmail.com with any questions. Let's open Dharma access to all beings. Mm-hmm.